Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. For decades, many have thought of Title IX as only of legal benefit to women's sports. The thought was, if you're going to drop a women's sport or two or seven because of budget problems, you better be sure you're in compliance first from the women's perspective. But it continues to amaze me that the schools fail to learn exactly what quote unquote being in compliance looks like, and they end up most of the time having to add them back. Last year, Clemson did just that as they tried to drop a bunch of sports, including men's track and field. Minnesota did the same thing with four sports, including both indoor and outdoor track and field, and ended up dropping indoor sport, indoor track only. Brown University also tried to drop its men's track and field and it re-added, et cetera, et cetera. Enter my guest today, Russell Dinkins, a national champion athlete and a former 400 and 800 meter track runner at Princeton University has been credited with helping restore many of the men's track and field programs that were on the, on the chopping block in the last couple of years. He happened to have some extra time during the early phases of the pandemic after getting laid off from his job at Mathematica Policy Research. He then penned a piece on Medium called Brown University, if you were actually serious about racial justice, you would not be cutting the men's track team. That truly went viral. He was just at the college track and field convention talking about his argument that dropping one of the most diverse teams on a primarily white institution campus is the opposite of what the colleges claim they stand for. He's joined by, of course, our friend of the podcast, Arthur Bryant, legal expert in all things Title IX. And as I've asked him on a previous podcast, does the winning get old, Arthur? Arthur and Russell have worked together to advance the narratives around DEI and Title IX. Our pleasure. So, Russell, let me start with you. Why are men's running programs easy targets for athletic administrators looking to save money? Wasn't the diversity and access obvious to athletic administrators, or they, they just think no one would notice? All right. Well, thank you for that great question. Um, yeah, so <laughs> to answer it uh, succinctly, um, no, I do not believe that it was obvious, um, and I do not believe that it was something that... Um, was something that they noticed, uh, but also isn't something that they prioritized or necessarily cared about. Um, the reason why I believe that track and field programs specifically um, have been targeted at universities is due to a mixture of both Title IX concerns and also financial concerns. And so um, for, I'll take the financial concern first. So track and field, uh, it's per capita expense in college is very low. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a cheap sport uh, to run. Also, if you break it up by season, it's a cheap sport. But when you combine all of the seasons together, track and field is broken up into three distinct seasons, um, cross country, indoor and outdoor track, which counts as three different sports for NCAA counting purposes and also for Title IX counting purposes, which author will um, elaborate on a little bit later. Um, those three sports are collapsed into one budgetary line item. Um, universities accounted as one expense at the end of the year. And so when you are combining three sports, uh, 
into one, um, the cost uh, would be higher than a sport that only participates in one season, which all the other sports in NCAA um, pretty much only participate in one season. Track and field um, is an outlier in that regard. And so, um, but then also, um, most sports programs in NCAA lose money. Um, they are not uh, 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 profit-generating entities. The only ones that are uh, are football, um, men's basketball, and then there are some select programs here and there at different universities. Um, there may be some women's basketball teams or women's gymnastics teams or a men's hockey team here and there. But uh, for the most part, um, sports teams are not uh, you know, revenue generating entities um, at these universities. And so, um, you know, that's something to kind of put, put out there. Uh, and then another reason is for Title IX. And, and, and in essence, um, what happens is that you have uh, schools have to maintain a Title IX percentage. Um, their, their ratio needs to be substantially proportionate to the ratio um, of male and female uh, students who are enrolled uh, at the undergraduate level. And so that needs to match what is offered in terms of participation um, uh, for, their, for, for their sports team. So if you have about 45% men and 55% women, you, your athlete participation numbers need to be about 45 to 55%. Now I said athlete participation because it's not a raw count of athletes. It's a count of athlete participation opportunities. And so track and field, again, it's three sports. And so if you have a young woman who runs cross country into an outdoor track, her one body counts as three different participation opportunities. Um, and so an easy way, so as uh, it's counted, you know, three times, you know, uh, for a cross country athlete, two times for a indoor and outdoor track and field athlete, on the women's side, it also counts like that for the men's side. So if the university is getting out of uh, NCAA compliance with regard to proportionality, an easy way, quote unquote, to adjudicate that is to eliminate a men's track and field team because a men's track and field team that may have 45 athletes may count for about 90, uh, more 80 to 90 um, spots. And so uh, if they get rid of the men's track and field team, it allows for uh, them to rebalance uh, their their numbers, so to speak. The issue is that track and field is the only non-revenue sport that offers significant opportunity to black and brown uh, students, and, and also is the only non-revenue that offers opportunity to lower income students. Um, all other uh, non-revenue sports, um, Olympic sports tend to be very cost prohibitive. They're very expensive, and they also tend to be very homogenous. Some of the sports being about 80 uh, percent white and upwards. Um, track and field um, has the third largest number of black men um, in, in NCAA. Um, for women, um, I believe it may be the, the number one. I'm not sure about, uh, I, I'll have to double check on that. And maybe number one or number two with um, with uh, women's basketball, but they're both extremely um, you know great uh, vehicles for uh, racial opportunity with regard to um, uh, sport. Um, the next sport on the men's side, uh, the number four spot, uh, has about 500 <laughs> athletes in all of D1. Uh, track and field has nearly 3,000. So just to give you a sense of the scale of how much more opportunities are offered through track and field versus these other sports, um, sports such as lacrosse and ice hockey, um, those sports have uh, black 
uh, participation numbers in the double digits. You know, just to give you, um, and this is all this is across the entire uh, Division One of the NCAA. Um, and this is data from the NCAA's um, demographics. Um, um, website. Um, so that's just to give you a sense of the scale. So to answer your question, um, they are not making these decisions um, implicitly, uh, or, uh, sorry, they're not making these uh, decisions explicitly to target Black um, athletes, in my view, all the time. Um, in some cases, maybe, but um, it's not something they're actively thinking about. I think they're thinking about money, and they're thinking about Title IX, and they're not thinking about the other um, unintended consequences of those decisions. I'm really glad you brought up <clears throat> access and affordability because that's a huge issue in all of higher ed right now. We have so many first gen students, students that are that are um, you know maybe trying to manage college through lots of student loans. Just give us a quick snapshot on scholarship amounts, if you will, in D one cross country, indoor and outdoor track. Great. So as track and field, <laughs> again, so uh, these universities they kind of have their cake and eat it too. Uh, so there's 12.6 scholarships on the men's side, um, I believe, and there's 18 scholarships on the women's side, and that uh, is for a track and field program, which includes cross country. So even though cross country, indoor and outdoor track count as three different sports for sports counting reasons and also for Title IX participation reasons, um, they are... Uh, one sport <laughs> uh, when it comes to uh, scholarships and how those are, are doled out. And so um, oftentimes with track and field across country, um, it's very, very, very rare to find somebody with a full scholarship, a full ride scholarship. Oftentimes uh, people are, are granted partials and then that may be coupled with um, financial aid or any sort of merit-based aid, or if they um, are in-state, um, you know, uh, in any sort of in-state aid that they may be eligible for if they are from a particular state. So Arthur, let's talk about how and why this is a Title IX problem, or is there something else that presidents are just completely missing about this? Well, it depends on the school. Um, for Title IX participation opportunities, which need to be equal, the law is basically that if the school, a school is going to eliminate a team of the underrepresented gender, which at almost all schools are women, because at almost all schools, it's women who are being discriminated against. Um, Title IX says if a woman's team is going to be eliminated or the, uh, a men's team in rare circumstances, um, then the school can only be in compliance with Title IX if it's percentage of women and men in the athletic program essentially match the percentage of women and men in the undergraduate student body. Uh, so when schools eliminate women's teams or women's and men's teams, um, whether it's track and field or any place else, they end up having to meet that standard proportionality. Um, and in case after case, they aren't doing that. They're just not paying attention to the numbers. They're often not paying attention to Title IX at all. Um, at some schools, they, I think, don't even know about Title IX or pay very, just are ignorant of facts. Um, at other schools, it's become clear they did think about Title IX, they just messed up. Um, 
And whether they messed up because they got bad legal advice or they messed up because they miscounted or didn't know the rules for counting, I can't say. Um, but what's interesting is that Title IX basically, the, the fundamental, print, let me back it up and do this. I think far too many schools, presidents and athletic directors are paying attention to Title IX and what it requires. The law is very simple. There are separate programs for men and women and those separate programs have to offer men and women equal opportunities to play sports, equal athletic financial aid, and equal treatment. If the school isn't doing that, it's in violation. So when they cut a team um, or a, a set of teams um, under Title IX, they have to provide equal opportunities to men and women, which means percentages that match their undergraduate enrollment rates. Too many schools aren't paying attention to that. Too many schools are just flat out violating it. And that's how they end up in legal trouble. Now, it turns out at Clemson, um, they were making a decision that had a severe and racially discriminatory impact on black athletes. But they, that decision also had a sexually discriminatory impact on male opportunities to participate. And so while the Supreme Court has made it very hard to challenge race discrimination, um, it's much easier to challenge sex discrimination in this context where the programs are separate and essentially have to be equal. You can look at it and, and know that there's not equality. That's what opens the door and schools are just not paying enough attention to. So one of the things that has surprised me about this emerging trend over the last couple of years of, um, of trying to drop track, particularly men's track programs, because Clemson is not the only one, is that deck for decades, track and football complemented each other. Mostly male, two sport athletes played both football and ran track. How has that changed or, or even has it changed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's definitely some natural synergies between the two sports. Uh, 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 track and field uh, has often been viewed favorably by uh, high school and, you know, some college program coaches as being a net benefit to their to the football programs, particularly with speed development. Um, I don't have the uh, the data. Um, uh, available to me. So this would be largely anecdotal, but it does seem as though there's been a move more towards kind of specialization. Um, and, you know, there's kind of talks about sports specialization um, at the youth level, but also at the collegiate level. Um, you don't quite see as many uh, two-sport athletes at, in the collegiate ranks um, um, as you did in the past. Again, this is my kind of own kind of anecdotal uh, kind of uh, observations here, but um, it does seem as though the the programs are are not um, there is as much uh, collaboration between the two programs as there um, the two between the two sports rather as there have been in the past, um, particularly at some of these large Power Five institutions um, like a Clemson. Um, you know, all these uh, a lot of these football athletes are now really focused on trying to get into the league. 
And so that's what their priorities are um, geared towards. So um, after the football season is over, um, there are, um, you know, efforts to try to prepare for, uh, you know, different camps or combines or things of that nature um, and not necessarily focused on um, doing another sport. Um, again, there are, you know, there's still, you know, the athletes are participating in both sports um, in college, but it's just not, I wouldn't say it's super commonplace. And, and I know for the Clemson issue, the football players were explicitly told not to say anything about uh, the track and field team getting cut. Um, and so, and, you know, a lot of these football athletes got to think about it from their perspective. Um, you know, they are basically in the proving grounds for the for the NFL, um, you know, whether or not we want to admit that that's what it is. And so um, no athlete, you know, wants to potentially, you know, make themselves a liability for a potential team uh, by saying or doing something that could be viewed as being controversial. Um, and so, and especially when there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars potentially on the table, uh, depending on the talent level of the athlete. And so, um, yeah, I, Unfortunately, I think the uh, financial uh, sort of incentives are such that um, there probably wouldn't be um, the kind of natural support you would think there would be between football programs at the NCAA level, particularly Power 5 institutions and their track and field program counterparts. Again, there are exceptions and there are people who are participating in both sports and there are um, you know, support uh, for, you know, uh, between both programs in certain different places. But my experience in working with the two Power Five institutions that I worked with, University of Minnesota and Clemson, um, there was some quiet support amongst the players, but there was no um, sort of uh, outward um, expression due to fear of, you know, retaliation or just simply due to fear that it would hurt their brand and their opportunities to get into the league. That's a shame because there was a really good set of synergies there, I thought, for many, many years. Uh, but I also understand what you're saying as well. So the two of you have been partnering together on this. When did you start working together? Arthur, why don't you give us a sense of when that started? Well, we actually started working together without even knowing you <laughs> uh, in the Brown University um, okay. case in June of 2020. Um, what happened is, uh, and this was all basically Russell's work opened up my work. Um, and I should say first that I had been part of the legal team that first sued Brown University in 1992, um, got them held liable all the way up and down to the US Supreme Court and ultimately reached a settlement in 1998. Whereas part of the settlement, they had to keep their percentage of opportunities for men and women within uh, to play intercollegiate athletics within three and a half percentage points of their undergraduate enrollment rates, unless they canceled a women's team, because we didn't want them to cancel a women's team. And if they canceled a women's team, then they had to be within two and a quarter percentage points of undergraduate enrollment rates for men and women. And it went along like that from 1998 till 2020. And in 2020, in June, at the end of May, actually, um, Brown announced that it was eliminating six men's teams and five women's teams. And the sizes of the teams were such that it was eliminating twice as many spots for women, I'm sorry, twice as many spots for men as for women. And it was going to bring its percentages 
of athletic participation and its percentages of undergraduate enrollment for men and women within 1% of each other, um, which would have complied with the 1998 settlement agreement and um, allowed them to proceed. Um, and they said they were doing this not to save money, not because of COVID, but because they had so many teams, they felt like they couldn't financially support any of them to the level they could win championships. They were gonna take all the money they saved on the teams they cut, put them back into the teams that they saved and therefore improve the chances to get, uh, get championships. Three of those teams were the men's track and field and cross country teams. In, I'm sorry, men's indoor track and field, outdoor track and field and cross country teams, which were primarily minority teams. And a furor started to get created. All of the teams fought their elimination, but the track and field and cross country teams sort of took particular lead in the public relations battle to say, how dare you cut us? What are you talking about? Brown is supposed to be this progressive institution. Um, George Floyd was just murdered by the police. You say you care about diversity, but you're eliminating these teams. And the only teams that you are adding supposedly to increase opportunities for women are co-ed and women's sailing. How many black athletes do you think are gonna be on those sailing teams, especially compared to track, field and cross country? You need to put track, field and cross country back. And Russell was totally involved in a key player in that push to get those three teams back. And so on June 6th, I think it was 2020, the president of Brown issues an open letter to the entire university saying, we would love to put these three men's teams back because we care so much about diversity. But if we eliminate these three teams, we would be violating our 1998 settlement agreement because we would therefore be beyond two and a quarter percentage points difference in our undergraduate enrollment rates and our participation in athletics rates. So we can't do it. And three days later, she did it. So all of a sudden, because of Russell's work with other people, the three men's teams come back and the difference now between what's left, which is now they're eliminating three men's teams and five women's teams, is that the women's participation rates um, are nowhere near what they should be under the settlement. And so all of a sudden there is a Title IX case. And so without having met each other at all, or even knowing each other, Russell's work basically is what uh, helped open up the entire Title IX uh, battle that went on at Brown, where we ultimately then forced Brown to put two other teams back for women. Um, and uh, otherwise, you know, continue and achieve gender equity. So that's how it started. And then Russell and I heard of each other um, and he kept working away on their things. And then he called me about Clemson. And Clemson was the case where we really started uh, working together, but I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, so I'll leave it to late. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I just wanted to add um, the, uh, the the way that, that the Brown kind of fight began. Um, um, I wrote an article in, in Medium basically calling out Brown's decision to cut their track and field program and replace it with sailing. 
Um, and uh, Brown, by cutting their, by eliminating their men's track and field program, they were eliminating a team that had more black athletes than four of their other programs combined. And their sailing program already existed at a, as a club team, but was being elevated to varsity. Um, uh, club athletics uh, are, do not operate the same as varsity. Varsity athletics uh, get recruitment slots. And they also get um, funding from the university, whereas club teams do not have recruitment slots and they, and they don't get um, the same level of funding from a university. Anyway, their already existing uh, sailing team didn't have any black athletes on it. And due to my recollection, I don't think they had any people of color on it at all. <laughs> and so um, it was, it was a, um, it was a, it was kind of an egregious decision by Brown to, to, to do that. And the article went viral and kind of caused about a bunch of, uh, um, you know, consternation. Um, but then, you know, once they, you know, uh, decided to bring back the Miss Track and Field team due to the racial and social economic opportunity that the sport provides and the backlash that they were receiving, particularly on, on the heels of the George Floyd um, tragedy and, you know, all the statements, Brown included, that all these institutions were making, entities were making about, oh, we care about these issues. And it's okay, if you care about these issues, then, you know, don't just write a statement, actually do something about it. Um, uh, you know, that kind of uh, opened the door to their Title IX, nine compliance issue is how author got involved. But author and I also kind of walked past each other again with uh, William & Mary. I was helping William & Mary and their team. And um, I know he was working with some other programs at William & Mary. Um, and so, yeah, we've kind of been in, in the same space. Um, and then uh, what happened with Clemson, um, I was convinced by one of the parents that, hey, there's a Title IX issue that um, uh, disservicing the men. And I was really skeptical at first, but I looked into it and I saw, oh, actually, I think they are out of compliance um, uh, disadvantaging the men. And so I sent author an email and had a chart in there and kind of explained it. And he called me back. He's like, you know, your numbers are a little off, but they <laughs> seem to be, they seem to be like in the, like they, they seem to be in the right kind of direction. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you, we usually don't take men's cases, but, you know, you know, the, the racial opportunity plus, you know, these numbers, we'll take a look at it, you know, and I'm so grateful that uh, in his firm took a look at it because obviously there was a case there and it ended up being successful. That's a great story. You must be two brothers from another mother. That's all I can say. You just have the same passion and belief in equity and equal justice. And that's, that's really cool. Russell, Runner's World did a very interesting piece on you that you talked about you doing some organizing of impacted athletes, trying to teach them how to push back. And you said, I actually was involved with helping build their organizational structures and telling them, hey, you need to be aggressive. You need to have a very robust social media strategy. You need to have a clear message. You need to inundate them with emails. Oh boy. And you need to, to do all these things and these steps in order to be effective. Tell my listeners why the messaging and content pressure was so important. Yeah, so the reason why that was so important, particularly for the first three fights, I mean, Clemson was actually different. Um, Clemson, we had to go legal, and, and I know we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but um, for the first three, uh, with uh, William & Mary, um, uh, with uh, Brown, and with the University of Minnesota, this, these three cuts happened right 
around the summer of activism, uh, the summer of 2020. And so there was a lot of energy around social justice and around these conversations and around movement around these issues. And I knew that that was the thing that we could use in order to uh, advance change in a specific way that we needed to use that moment, that moment in time in order to uh, get these universities to change course. And the only way that we were going to do that is by having a loud, consistent, uh, and amplified message. And so uh, I, I talked to them about you need to have consistent, constant social media pressure. We need to create these moments online so that there's reason for news outlets to cover the story. They need a newsworthy hook. Um, and so, uh, you know, with, with the different with the different schools, um, I, I did different things, such as I wrote an op-ed on behalf of, of the University of Minnesota, and that actually came a few days before um, their board was to meet about the decision of whether or not to reinstate the programs. And lo and behold, right um, right after that uh, that uh, op-ed was published. Um, at the 11th hour, literally the morning of the meeting, the president and the ADs gave all the trustees a new proposal that um, saved the outdoor track and field program. Um, it didn't save the indoor track and field program, but it saved the outdoor track and field program. Uh, whereas that wasn't the proposal at all beforehand. The proposal was either to eliminate all the programs or to bring them back. And so they um, initiated a half measure at the last uh, minute and watching the board meeting because it was public um, a number of the uh, member, uh, a number of the trustee trustees uh, talked about how um, they were concerned about eliminating the entire track and field program due to the racial opportunities that it that it provided, and um, some uh, of the language and the data that I had in my op-ed was leveraged uh, by um, you know by those uh, board trustee members. Um, it, with another school we used, um, with Clemson, we actually used a really hard hitting video. Um, so yeah, having this constant pressure, this consistent pressure, um, one, annoyed the heck out of these administrators and then wore them down. But then two, um, it was important because it created news and we needed to create news because here's the thing, these universities, they expect that these decisions will kind of happen in the dark, in the void, because <laughs> Title IX and, and NCAA compliance and all these things are a bit complicated and they're not easily digestible for people who don't understand the issues intimately. I mean, I know this is what author lives every day. And so it's really easy for folks like him, but, um, you know, for, you know, for the layperson, you know, it's not something that they would be able to probably grasp really, really quickly. And so I believe my opinion is that universities uh, kind of lean on that um, and, and hope that one, teams will be disorganized. They won't know how to organize themselves. And then two, won't know how to leverage um, a really easily identifiable, communicatable and digestible message um, effectively. And so my role in helping these universities, um, sorry, helping these teams of alumni, parents, and students uh, when I would uh, work with them is to basically help them structurally organize, help them identify a message, and then help them launch that message um, so that uh, they can get the message out there and 
kind of put that specific pressure on the university um, and get media coverage. And it's been effective um, for the programs that I've worked with thus far. And as I mentioned in the open, I mean, th this happened to become at a moment in time in your life where you had the time, energy, and passion to be able to deal with it. It's not like somebody from some company is paying you to go around and do this. This was a, a labor of love for you that you really wanted to make sure that these programs could survive. Yeah, yeah. You know, labor of love is a nice way to say it. I was broke. So I was not, I was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was, um, you know, I, I got laid off and I got rid of my car. Um, I had a, a part-time education job um, that was remote, um, thankfully, prayerfully. And then I also had a, um, um, I was also able to leverage um you know, uh, my, I guess, Ivy League degree to give SAT lessons to folks because people like to hire someone who went to an Ivy League to teach their kids how to, you know, look at, you know, fractions. But, you know, <laughs> I, I was able to, <laughs> I was able to uh, make ends meet, but it, it was, um, I was operating just um, at the margins and sometimes at a little bit of a loss, but it's something that I cared about. Um, Thankfully, um, right when I felt as though I wasn't able to do this anymore, um, Tracksmith and Athletic Apparel Company actually came in and gave me um, a pretty healthy stipend um, uh, for, uh, for four months of work, which basically covered all of my work with Clemson, which was very, very, which was very, very great. And then uh, more recently, uh, Tracksmith actually offered me an opportunity to uh, begin uh, to, to start their uh, nonprofit arm. And so I am the executive director um, uh, as of last month uh, of their uh, foundation, which is, which is, um, which is a blessing. Uh, but yeah, before that, it was about a year, year and a half. I didn't have an official job or title um, and um, really kind of just hustled on the side so that I can dedicate my time and energy to this issue. You know, Arthur Russell mentioned earlier that Clemson's situation was the only one to go legal or went legal. Tell us about the process from there. Once you determined you were going to write a letter to Clemson and say, hey, you guys are way out of line here. And again, how should presidents avoid incurring legal and public relations costs, costs being both financial and, and um, in terms of your brand and image? Uh, because this seems like it was something that just didn't need to happen. Well, so first, I want to say, Russell and I both care fundamentally about right and wrong. That's what drives us. Um, the right and wrong of race discrimination, the right and wrong of sex discrimination. You know, and to be clear, there's really no right of race discrimination or sex discrimination. We are both dedicated to fighting discrimination. Um, and the law prohibits, um, in terms of Title IX, the law prohibits sex discrimination, period. End of discussion. You can't discriminate against people on sexual or racial grounds to save money. You can't discriminate against people because of COVID. You just can't do it. And the first mistake that, two, that schools and their presidents and their athletic directors are making is they're forgetting that basic, you know, principles of right and wrong, those basic principles of right and wrong. Uh, there are too many schools and too many athletic directors who think their job is win games and bring in money. 
without thinking yet, well, yes, that even if that is true, it's within the context of making sure they're complying with federal law and not discriminating against people on the basis of sex or race. Um, and so that's the first mistake. The second mistake is then when they cut teams. Because the truth is, sadly, that most schools in this country right now are in violation of Title IX because they are discriminating almost always against their women athletes by depriving them of equal, of equal treatment and benefits compared to the men athletes. Um, you can't find in almost any school female athletes treated as well as football players are treated from the male side. Um, and not that Title IX requires that exactly, but it requires the men as a whole to be treated equally to the women as a whole. And if some set of men are being treated like gods and no women are being treated anywhere close to that, and the rest of the men are kind of being treated like the women, the school's in violation. So they're sitting there already in violation, but most women, or men for that matter, don't go to college thinking they're gonna sue their school. Um, and so what it takes to get athletes at schools angry enough to sue over discrimination um, or caring deeply enough to do that is something that directly affects their lives, which historically is almost always eliminating their teams. Is when you eliminate athletes' teams, they're, they want to fight back and say, I, I love this sport. It's part of who I am. I want to preserve my opportunities to play. Um, and that's when they start seeing, what could I do to turn this around? And when the answer is, the school's already in violation of Title IX, and now it's just made it worse, that's when they look to bring the lawsuit. And so the other sort of fundamental thing is the school's making the mistake of eliminating teams. Now, in Clemson's case, what was unusual is Title IX requires women and men to be treated equally in athletics in three different areas, opportunities to play, athletic financial aid, and treatment. Clemson was providing equal opportunities to men and women before it cut the men's track and field and cross country. And so when it did that, all of a sudden, it was putting itself in a situation where it was discriminating against the male student athletes in the athletic program by giving them fewer opportunities to play than they should have had. Basically, it was providing equality and that was eliminating 89 chances for men to play sports, which was just a stunningly boneheaded decision. Um, when we looked at it, we just, Russell came to me with the numbers he would gather publicly. And we said, we're gonna to have to look into this more deeply because we, this makes no sense. Why would a school like Clemson make a decision? Um, now we have been approached in the past about suing um, schools for eliminating men's teams. And the problem is that in too many circumstances, the school, if you threaten to sue, could respond by saying, oh, we'll make it equal, we'll cut a, limit. We'll cut a couple of women's teams too, and that'll be even everything else. And we did not want to risk that, and we hadn't taken on such a case. 
But when Russell came to me uh, with the Clemson facts, where the school was in violation um, by uh, discriminating against men by cutting the track field across country teams for men, um, we designed the strategy and said, look, we need to protect about that and we need to go after them for all of the discrimination. So on a Friday, um, I sent the president a lot letter that said, hi, I'm Martha O'Brien, we represent the men on the track field and cross country teams. You're violating Title IX by eliminating these teams and not giving men equal opportunities to play and you need to put them back and get in full compliance. And the following Monday, Lori Bullock, my co-counsel in the other cases, wrote a letter and said, hi, I represent the women on the track and field and rowing teams in particular, um, because, and we know about the men's threat lawsuit, and we certainly support that we want equality and fight for Title IX, but uh, we want to point out to you, you're discriminating against women by depriving them equal athletic financial aid and equal treatment. And unless you give us equality, we're gonna sue on a class action on behalf of all of the women, just like Arthur Bryan is threatening to bring a class action on behalf of all the men. So all of a sudden we had Clemson, the first school in the country, simultaneously threatened by both the men and the women for discriminating against them on the basis of sex in different areas of athletics. And it was critically important that among the women who were threatening to sue were the women's uh, track and field teams and rowing teams, as it was because those were the two largest women's teams. Clemson was already providing the minimum number of women's teams it could provide, so it couldn't cut another women's team. The only way it could reduce opportunities for women in response to this threatened suit by the men was to cut the two large women's teams. But now the two large women's teams were threatening to sue. You know, now if it retaliates against those teams or the group of women, they have a, a new Title IX lawsuit for retaliation, which it didn't want to step into. And so the key was that the women and men united, and the women made clear to Clemson um, that either you're going to settle with the men too, or we're not going to settle with you, because there needs to be equality all the way around. And pointing out to the school, and let's be clear about how much better you're treating the men and went into the details of what the football players at Clemson were getting. That was just jaw-dropping and let everybody realize how unequal this football was. It's remarkable to me. <clears throat> the AD was the AD at Clemson at that time, has now gotten a very lovely new job at another ACC institution. And uh, Russell, you mentioned earlier about, you know, how, how people are rewarded, you know, they're rewarded for winning football teams and building stadiums. He, Clemson had one of the most uh, egregious one-two punches in Title IX, yet it didn't seem to affect him getting another job with a better paycheck. And maybe that's part of the issue is that there's really no consequences for athletic directors that they make a, a boneheaded decision like trying to drop a sport there's no real consequence. Russell, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. Um, I mean, so you, he's currently the athletic director at Clemson. He's moving on to the University of Miami. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, it's it's and, remarkable. Uh, I mean, it's like, uh, wow. But if he'd screwed up and had losing football seasons... 
right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the decision that he made um, ended up costing Clemson a lot of money. <laughs> um, a lot of money they had to pay for the legal fees. Um, for their own legal fees, they had to pay for, um, you know, they, they, they just had to pay a lot of money. <laughs> uh, and then they also had to, in addition to bringing back the men's track and field program, they had to add, um, uh, I think, two women's uh, uh, programs. Um, and in addition to, uh providing additional uh dollars for equalizing the financial aid disparity and the, and the, and the uh, financial treatment disparity and so um a lot of money but i think um this is just conjecture this is just my own speculations um i think uh there was enough kind of pushing the responsibility on to like the university or the president or the or the trustees in order for an AD to kind of sidestep um, kind of culpability for this um, in a major way. That's one thought. The second thought, which is kind of you know um, disappointing, the core business of these major institutions, you know, are their football programs. I mean, that's the core. That's the core business and. Um, Dan Radakovich, um, under his watch, um, Clemson football um, grew um, in terms of the revenues that they were producing. Um, it almost doubled. I mean, looking at the at the financial reports data, um, when he came in, um, uh, I forget exactly what they were making, bringing in each year when he first came in, but it uh, it paled in comparison to what they were bringing in when he left, which was about sixty five million dollars, <laughs> you know, per year, and so. Um, yeah, it, it is, uh, and, and I, uh, you know, I don't have the data right in front of me, so forgive me if I'm wrong. But I believe when Dan Radakovich came in, um, they, the revenues they were generating was in the 30s, I believe. Um, you know, somewhere in that ballpark, um, and so it definitely went up um, a significant amount. And you know, an, another university, you know, they may look at that and say, hey, that is, you know, that's something that we want. And yeah, you know, he caused this major issue that you know, maybe ended up costing the university maybe $4 million in total when you account for everything. Yeah, you know, that, that that's the cost that we're willing to to eat if we're able to generate this much revenue from uh, kind of uh, a, a football program that's kind of growing in, in, in prowess and, and prestige and also able to bring in increased revenues. And so um, that's, again, these are my speculations. I'm not privy to these kind of internal decisions, but I think Arthur has a point uh, that uh, he would like to add to that. Yeah, let me just add uh, first, in terms of Clemson and Dan Radakovich, um, yes, he wasn't held accountable in the extent that he went on and got a better job, but I'd like to think he learned his lesson um, because the truth is Clemson, after having to deal with what Russell and I were able to generate, um, and, the, and of course the team members and the team supporters who were critical to the whole thing and their willingness to fight, ultimately Clemson did what it should have done. Clemson not only put back, the, decided, agreed not to cut the men's track field and cross country teams, but it, added two women's teams, it agreed to provide equal athletic financial aid, and it agreed to provide equal treatment. Within a couple of years, Clemson has legally committed to be fully in compliance with Title IX. And I'd like to think that Radicovich is going to take to the next job 
and understanding that that's what needs to be done. And if he doesn't, you know, they're stepping into it. But I also wanted to flag, that's one example, and it may be explainable to the, you know, football and financial explanations that Russell gave, but it is not true that athletic directors don't get held accountable. At Brown University, at William and Mary, and at Dartmouth, within a month or so of our threatening to sue and the school surrendering, the athletic directors were gone. Um, literally, in, you know, close to half of the schools we threatened to sue and ended up backtracking and putting the teams back, the athletic directors been gone within a month or so. So I think they're learning very quickly. Um, if you like to keep your job, don't do this. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, and yet, you know, a place like Clemson, it does what make you question the value structure. But I'm really glad to hear that they not only went back to where they were, but they actually moved further ahead. And I do remember hearing that they added two women's teams, which, which is great because I think they were at the minimum of Division I sports where they had 16 at, the, at that point. So that, that's a plus. Gentlemen, let's wrap this up. Can you give us one takeaway from your experiences in the last couple of years uh, and help presidents understand um, how, where this pushback is headed? Because there's, you have some serious momentum behind you. Russell, go ahead. All right, cool. Well, I'll take, uh, uh, <laughs> I'll take two points, if, you, if I may. I want directed um, at university presidents and then one kind of more broadly. Um, so for university presidents, administrators and the like, um, you know, I think it's really, really, really crucially important that they recognize the opportunities that are offered uh, through sport, um, in particular, the diverse opportunities that are offered through a sport like track and field. Um, you know, people don't really recognize that uh, these sports teams offer direct uh, pathways to admissions opportunities, and, and these direct pathways are basically open doors um, year in and year out via recruitment slots. When you have some of these uh, non-revenue or Olympic sports that cater to more affluent communities, uh, those are spots that are almost always going to be filled by people who are from more affluent communities or people who tend to be white. Now, my argument has never been to take away those sports programs. My argument has always been, do not take away the one sport that actually offers opportunity to a broader swath of people in a way that's replicable, in a way that is consistent. I mean, if you have a track and field program um, that includes sprints, jumps, um, throws, you are almost guaranteed to have a substantial number of Black athletes filling those spots each year, just based off of who participates in the sport year in and year out. Um, and that is evidenced by the participation numbers. Again, um, you know, track and field has about 3,000. The next sport, uh, 3,000 Black men participating in it. The next sport has, uh, um, you know, just a little bit over 500. That's soccer. And then it drops to uh, the 100 um, for a few sports. And then I think sport number seven drops to, this, to the double digits. Um, and so track and field is really a uniquely situated to provide those sort of opportunities. And those opportunities cannot be replicated by any other program um, that a university has, in my opinion. I mean, if the university has um, uh, science scholar or dance scholar or, or these kind of programs, 
those are great and they should have those programs. But, you know, they may get five people in one year, they may get one another year, they might get 14 another year, they might get none another year. With the sports program, every single year, you know that there's a certain number of spots that are going to be filled um, via recruitment, and those spots are going to um, benefit disproportionately so people from different backgrounds if it is a track and field program versus other programs. So again, my argument has never been take away those other programs. My argument has always been do not take away this one program that offers uh, distinctly, uniquely a diverse opportunity along racial and socioeconomic lines. Um, because track and field, um, one thing I didn't mention, is the cheapest sport in high school by far <laughs> out of all other sports, um, uh, on average costing families less than $200 to participate in. Um, other sports are way more expensive. Anyone who has their kids in any uh, sports programs at the youth level knows this intimately. Um, and then the, then the second point I wanted to mention was you know, this year really uh, taught me um, really something great about uh, advocacy, using your voice, and um, really uh, seizing kind of um, a moment. And so, you know, I, I didn't know that, you know, uh, writing on Medium would turn into kind of a, a, a movement that would end up saving hundreds of opportunities for, for hundreds of kids all over this nation. Um, and I'm someone who did not have a platform, was not well known, was not an influencer, you know, or anything of that nature. And so I really encourage people uh, to uh, not be afraid of, of using, you know, whatever sort of influence they have in their lives. You know, it may not be writing an article that, you know, reverses a university decision. Um, it may be much smaller in scale, but you still do have influence in some way. And so recognize the influence that you have and use that to great effect. Arthur? To me, the shocking, disturbing lesson is that so many schools are still in violation of Title IX when it has now been the law for 50 years. Title IX is very simple. It says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. Every school's president would say, the school agrees with that. Every school's president would say, we're committed to ending discrimination on the basis of sex or race. Um, and we believe strongly in that. Then they need to prove it. The law is clear. They need to make sure their athletic departments are not discriminating on the basis of sex and violation of people or on the basis of race. Uh, and if that takes strong action, they need to take strong action. If that requires um, expanding opportunities that they don't have before, they need to do it. If that means doing something different than they've always done, then they need to do it. It's the law. The lesson that the presidents and the schools and their board of directors need to learn is either they are going to get in compliance and stop discriminating on the basis of their own actions, or they're going to get sued and forced to be doing it it with a court overlooking it and then having to pay their lawyers fees and other and the women's lawyer fees. They should be doing this because it's the right thing to do and it's the law, not because they're finally held accountable and forced to do it by women who are so upset they're willing to see it. Well, Russell Dinkins, Arthur Bryant, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. You've given us a lot to think about 
And uh, <clears throat> I would not want to run into the two of you in any kind of fight in a courtroom. I just would not. So thank you both very, very much. Thank you, Karen.